Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? I, I think we got a lot of people out sick, huh? This thing's going around, man. It's just ripping through our community. So good to see you guys here with your uh, new sweet peas. Wow, look at they're just about the size of the super burrito I like to get over at the taco truck. Yeah, they're cute, man. They're adorable. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here, Levon. And uh, good to see everyone else. Well, take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 16. I couldn't be with you last Sunday. We went to a shepherd's conference down south, and it was really an amazing time. And uh, wouldn't you know it, as soon as I got out of Bruce's car Friday night getting dropped off, this thing hit me just like a, man, just like a ton of bricks. Just got sick from there on out. Couldn't be here Sunday. I was just too weak and coughing and and all that stuff. But uh, how did Sunday go, man? Uh, I, I don't know what elders we had here, but everything go pretty smooth? Yeah, Paul was here, right? Paul has a way of keeping things very balanced. I've known him for 12 years. Trust me, he does that. So, uh, yeah, but Paul, Paul, thank you for, uh, for, for taking a, a leadership role that morning. And, and thank you to, to Lily and the band, too, for, for leading that morning. And I, I gave a, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that is great. And that, that's a testimony, I think, to uh, Aaron's commitment to the Lord in, in making disciples and raising up band people and stuff like that, worship leaders. And that's just exciting. So isn't God good to us? We're a small body of people, but man, God is so good here. And uh, so anyways, you guys over at Acts 16, that's where we're going to be studying this morning. Uh, we have been examining, we, we began to a couple of weeks ago, the first phase of Paul's second missionary journey, which took place in a place called Macedonia, aka Southeast Europe. Two weeks ago, we read about how Paul went to Philippi, which was the major city of the region. And when he arrived, he looked for a synagogue to preach in, as was his custom. Uh, after discovering that there were no synagogues and, or leading Jews uh, in the community, he made his way to the riverside to see if he could find a place of prayer. And as he approached the riverside, he noticed a group of devout ladies. Let's give it up for the ladies, right? If there's nothing happening in a community, you can always find a group of devout ladies while the guys are at the bar watching the Niners. It's just ridiculous. Uh, but women really are the backbone of the church in so many ways, so uh, we're thankful for you. But he did go down to the riverside and found some, some devoted ladies down there, and, and uh, commentators say they were probably praying and, and, and more than likely even studying the Torah to, to the best of their ability. So he saw this group, and he then approached them, with his team, and he sat down and began to proclaim the gospel. He took this sort of rabbinic role. You know, rabbis would sit with people that they were going to teach their pupils, and he kind of sat down as a rabbi with this group of, of ladies and, and just opened up the scriptures and began to proclaim Jesus Christ. One of the women present, a seller of purple goods named Lydia of Thyatira, uh, was brought to faith, not by Paul, <laughs> by God. And then baptized by Paul. Her household too. God showed mercy not only to her but to her entire household. And filled with love and joy and gratitude for what Christ had done for her. She'd been saved now. She, Lydia pleaded with Paul to come and stay at her house. And she desired to, immediately desired after being converted and baptized, desired to turn her house into a hub of ministry and missions work in her town. And so she invited him and sort of compelled him and persuaded and begged and said, come, please use my house. Kind of persistent as 
Women can be, I know, I'm married to one, and uh, amen. And they finally just kind of folded and said, all right, we'll use your house for crying out loud. And uh, they went over and began to stay with her, and that's where we left off. And this morning we will resume at uh, 16, and then we're going to be looking at 16 to 24 this morning, Lord willing. I'd like to get through this text, even if it takes just a little bit longer, Uh, because what I've been noticing is, you know, I've been trying to get through text in an expedited way, and, and we understand that. We don't want to be here all day, but uh, sometimes we cut a sermon, you know, a, a, a good portion of the end of it off, and it kind of loses the meaning of the whole text, and so I'm not saying I'm going to try to go long this morning, but we might go a few minutes over just warning you, so. But anyways, uh, hopefully not. So anyways, that's where we're going to be. I, I think it's best to pray again before we uh, proceed, right, before we go any further Father, um, thank you for our time. God, I pray that you'd uh, supernaturally open our hearts and mind to you this morning. God, you have a word for us. It's right in front of us in this Bible. It's not my word. It's your word. And, uh, and you desire to speak to each of us today and to meet each of us right where we're at. It's amazing, Lord, how each of us is on a different trajectory in faith and at different levels of maturity and understanding and wisdom and, and your word, God, when you proclaim your word to us and even through us, you meet us right where we're at. There's always something that we can glean. There's always something that we can apply. There's always something powerful and impactful for our lives. And, uh, and so, Lord, we pray that you would powerfully impact our lives this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us. This is the moment on Sundays where you actually speak directly to us through your word. And so we anticipate what you'll say. And uh, we know that, uh, that you intend good for those who love and who love you and are called according to your purposes, and that you intend to convict those who have yet to come to know you. And so I pray that you do uh, that today, Lord. Convict those who have yet to come to know you, edify and build up those who do, and may you receive all the glory in the name of Jesus, and that's the name we pray this in, amen. All right. So we're at 16, verse 16, where we're going to pick up at. If you're there, say, I'm there. Sounds like everybody. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Paul and his team had a successful I would say a successful experience in the Lord at the riverside with Lydia and her family. And verse 16 seems to imply that the riverside place of prayer became the primary place where Paul preached the gospel in Philippi. We see it right there as we were going to the place of prayer. He's given us the idea that this is the normal thing that we did day in and day out. And so when he went down there and met this group of devout women and preached the gospel and and, and women responded, or this woman and her household responded in repentance and faith, he knew that, man, this is the place to go to, just as it had been like in a synagogue or something else somewhere else in the community. In other towns like Lystra, Paul went to the Agora marketplace, and then in others like Iconium, he went to the synagogues. But in Philippi, he went to the river, that place of prayer. Paul and his team made their way down to the riverside, and on the way down, they encountered a rather interesting female. 
okay? And Luke includes four important details about her in the text right there. All right, number one, she was a girl. Well, duh, right? No, don't go duh yet. She was a girl. This means that she was young, okay? In other instances, Paul has referred to females as women, meaning they were mature, mothers, mature people in Judaism, mature people in the faith. And so this particular lady that he crosses path with was a young girl, probably an early teen or adolescent, probably pre-puberty. As I said, Luke used the title woman in chapter 16 and 17 to describe, to describe mature older females. There is a definite distinction here in the text in the original language. This particular female was young, what we might call a kid. Second thing is that she was a slave. She was a slave girl, it says in the text. This young girl may have been sold by her parents or a relative to her slave owners, which was something that happened tragically back in those days. Or she may have grew up in a, in a family that was owned by these guys, and she may have just been inherited to these owners that owned her. We, we don't know, but she was a slave and had owners. We're not sure exactly how it played out. In the Greek, she is called a paideske, which simply means female slave or slave girl. And so that's who she was, a young slave girl. May have been inherited into this thing, may have been sold into this thing, born into it, we have no idea, but she was a slave. And this was massive in Greek culture. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Romans did not like to work at all. They did not do pull nine to fives, or in Brenda's case, you know, 10 hours a day as a nurse and these things. They did not like to work. Work was for slaves. Work was for servants. Work was for bond slaves and bond servants. And so this was very, very common. In fact, slaves outnumbered the actual populace, the actual Roman population. And so very interesting statistic there. And so she was like any one of the millions probably, if there was, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million people in the Roman Empire, probably more than that, maybe 40 I think at this time, uh, there were just as many slaves. And so uh, 20 million slaves probably, 25 million of them were slaves. So they did not like to work, and that's what's playing out here. She was a paideske, slave girl, young one. Number three, she had a spirit of divination, divination. Our slave girl was possessed. She was possessed. She was possessed by an evil spirit or what we might call a demon. Spirit of divination is an interesting phrase. In the original language, it's actually called python in Greek. Python is a Greek mythological reference to the enormous female dragon or snake called Python, which Apollo supposedly killed near Dan and Frida's house in Delhi. No, not Delhi, Delphi. So Greek mythology, Dan and Frida are thinking, you know, I've seen snakes in our yard, never quite a python. That's because Apollo's killed it, you guys. 
Um, so this was some mythological story, Roman story, Greek story. But in any case, Python was believed to, this, this mythical beast, mystical beast, was believed to have the ability to proclaim prophetic oracles, or what we might call tell the future. In Paul's day, there were ventriloquists who claimed to have the spirit of Python, or a what we might call a Pythonic spirit, in their bellies, which gave them the power to tell the future. This was a real thing. You need to think in our day, a contemporary example, or a de- not a contemporary, but a modern day example would be psychics like Cleo. Remember her? Remember that one, the, uh, the fake Rastafarian lady on TV? Call me now. Remember her? $29.95, she'd tell you your future. John Edward, have you heard of him? He's the one that talks to the dead all the time, got a big TV program. And then maybe some of you are more familiar with Teresa Caputo, who's the Long Island medium. And so uh, all of these people professing to have this this Pythonic sort of spirit ability to tell the future. Same kind of thing playing out in our text. This young slave girl was possessed, and I don't think in any false sense at all, this is is a true reality, this does take place, there are frauds out there, but this particular slave girl was possessed by a a Pythonic-esque, if you will, spirit, and she had the ability to tell the future. She could foresee the future and tell the future. Fourth detail Luke puts in this amazing narrative is that she made her masters lots and lots of money, lots of money through fortune-telling. Her owners realized very quickly at some point that she had this supernatural ability and then put her to work. You know, they immediately sought to take advantage of this, what they would have perceived as and even called a spiritual gift. They took full advantage of this talent that she had Despite the fact that it was demonic. (laughs) Some people have absolutely no fear or reverence for dark forces. uh, Greeks in particular, Romans in particular back in this day. They made use of her abilities to make them a fat profit. Really pretty sad if you think about that. That here's a, a young girl. Just take that into consideration. We've got a She might have been 9 or 10 years old, maybe younger. She may have been 11 or 12. She might have been 13. Young girl by our standards. She's a slave. That's hard. She's possessed. That's harder. That's a nightmare. And then she's being exploited by these men. Uh, A modern day equivalent would be we would probably be able to parallel this to the kiddie porn industry or the child sex trades. Where inhuman beasts sexually exploit children for profit. This is a hard thing for me to talk about, but it is a growing problem in our world and in our country. And you know what? If we were to look close enough, I'm certain that we would find it right in our own community. I'm certain that we would find it 
even here. And I really do believe that the church should do what it can to help to bring it to an end, if that's even possible. This world has fallen, Genesis 3. But that doesn't mean that we don't commit ourselves to justice and to prayer. And we know, we know without a shadow of a doubt, when King Jesus comes back, when he returns, he will bring it and all these things to an end. Amen? He will. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Now, what did the slave girl, demonically possessed, pythonically possessed slave girl, making these guys tons of money, what did she do when, when Paul crossed paths with her and his team? Look at verse 17. It says she followed Paul, <laughs> just kind of following along, and us crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Isn't that great? That's fantastic. Somehow, the Pythonic spirit enabled her to know who Paul was and the truth of the gospel, and then it empowered her to proclaim the gospel at the top of her lungs. How marvelous, right? How great. Hold your horses. That's not at all what was going on in the text, in the story, in the historical narrative. First of all, we must all understand the disposition and task of the demonic. <laughs> demonic forces are not out for humanity's ultimate good. They're not out to glorify God, to praise God, to proclaim the gospel. We, we need to not get these things crossed up, people. The demons are not about the gospel in any good sense, believe me. And they're not out for our good. They're not out to praise and worship Jesus and to make the truth known. They work for the devil, period. And the devil is the father of lies. He is the father of murder, lust, perversion, and all unrighteousness. He is God's enemy. And he is our enemy. We need to know this truth, even when we see these things that look right and sound good. We need to know who the devil is and what his minions are about. And we need to walk carefully through life because our enemy, the devil, along with his demons, they roam the earth to and fro looking for one to deceive, one to devour. He is a roaring lion. That's the metaphor, the example we're given in Scripture. I heard a guy say, don't worry about the devil, he ain't nothing. He's like a snapping chihuahua. No, he is not. He is never to be trifled with. He is the ultimate adversary against God and against us. And he destroys people every day, every moment. Not only does he destroy people, but he leads Christians 
into all sorts of deceptions and fantasies and goofiness. So we are not to look at this text as a, as a, as a good thing, per se, that something here good is playing out. And I say what we need to do is we need to arm ourselves against the devil every day, every minute. If we're capable of remembering this, that we put on the full armor of God and fight the devil with all that we have and all that we are. Now the spirit that was in the slave girl was demonic or pythonic, which means that her declaration, okay, keep in mind that the basic foundation of this young lady was a demon. And that means that her declaration, okay, because it was coming from a demonic source, was meant to mislead or deceive, even though it seems spot on, right? At first glance, wow, look at this. The, the point of the Pythonic spirit in the girl is to deceive. It is to lead away. It is to distort the truth. And this is one of those great examples and instances where Satan himself disguised himself as an angel of light, right? In a young slave girl. Boy, is he a tricky devil. Now let's break down her declaration because she was going around shouting this most high God thing. She said, these men are servants. That's what she would begin by saying as she's following them around. This is true in a sense, right? Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke were servants. All evangelists are servants. All preachers are servants. All Christians are servants. But servants of what or who, according to what she was saying, she said, these men are servants of the Most High God. Now, from their perspective, hallelujah. This is true, right? To a degree, because that's who these evangelists were. Not in her context, not according to what she was saying. This took place in Philippi, which was what, according to verse 12? Look back at verse 12 in your Bible, and what does it say? Now we're starting to really see why Luke included this detail. What does it say? Someone say what it says. It was a what? A Roman colony. Trigger right there. This is why Luke put this in because everything that happens after that goes back to that being a core thing. Now which God was the reigning God in Roman religion, in Roman culture, and in Roman colonies. Zeus was the primary God. Romans actually called Zeus the most high God because to them, Zeus is above all other Gods. He is the king of the gods, if you will. And in some instances, they called him the king of kings. This slave girl was referring to Zeus, the most high god of the Roman gods. 
But what about the rest of her proclamation, her declaration? She also said, she said, these men are servants, these men are servants of the Most High God. She also said, they proclaim to you the way of salvation. Well, hallelujah, she's got to be speaking about the gospel, right? No. If she had Zeus in mind, then she couldn't have been speaking about the right way of salvation, right? Because Zeus can't save anyone. Zeus is nothing more than an, a carved image, an idol, a, 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 a mythological figure. And the pathway to Zeus, which she was proclaiming, is the pathway to salvation. is nothing more than a false broad road path or way. Zeus is an idol. And the way to Zeus is a, the path to Zeus is a fool's path. Beloved, there is no gold at the end of that rainbow. St. Patty's Day, little plug. And I'll tell you what's at the end of that path, the very gates of hell. The devil was using the slave girl to confuse Paul's message by steering the attention away from Jesus onto Zeus. The devil was attempting to use the slave girl along with Paul and his teammates to evangelize for Zeus. This is insane. And this is what the devil does. He even takes the proclamation of the gospel and twists it and distorts it and adds Zeus and other characteristics and things to it to create confusion and lead people astray. The devil does this today. He is always working to lead people away from the truth, to lead people away from Jesus. There are 10,000 religions in the world. There are innumerable philosophies and spiritualisms. There is the default mode of every human heart, which is works righteousness. He uses all of them to keep men from the truth. He even has Christian ministers in place who do his bidding. The devil never tires is always working to malign the holy name of God. Now look over at verse 8a. It says, and this she kept doing for many days. Ugh. This was a perpetual thing. Wherever Paul went, <laughs> she was there shouting her little evangelistic slogan. Every time he went to the riverside, she was there. She was on Paul like fleas on a dog, like stink on a pig, like Paul Rogers on Sound Doctrine. Now, not that Paul being on that would be annoying, because I'm praising God for that, that any man who would commit himself to Sound Doctrine, but in this instance with this girl following him around and trying to counter what he's saying, how annoying would this get? Imagine having a young girl follow you around 
the whole time shouting. Some of you dads know exactly what this is like if you have daughters. I'm praying for this couple right now. They got two of them. You're running around the house, yeah, la, 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 you know. Yeah, you're just like, okay, I've already told you about the, the sun and the sky 5,000 times. Time to take a break. And this was so much more serious than that. This wasn't a sweet little daughter running around asking her daddy questions all day long. This was a young girl who was just hammering Paul and his team as they went about proclaiming the gospel. He points to Jesus, I'm pointing to Zeus. It's incredible that Paul allowed it to go on. At all. Imagine having this happen. This is a serious, serious thing. Why? Because this was about heaven and hell. The gospel. The greatest proof, I'd say at least one of the greatest proofs, that the slave girl was proclaiming a false gospel is in how Paul responded to her in the rest of verse 8. Look at 8b. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And then it says, and it came out of her that very hour. The text says Paul became greatly annoyed. Her message annoyed him and her persistence annoyed him. And he actually reached a boiling point and then took action. He really wanted to shut that spirit up. He figured it out. He figured out what was going on with this girl. That this wasn't normal behavior for a young girl. This was over the top. And he reckoned that, man, there is a spirit in this girl. And filled with the Holy Spirit himself and, and filled with the power of God, he turned to her and exercised the demon. He said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. This is with all the force of heaven. This is amazing. Paul embodied Jesus' words in Mark 16, 17, where Jesus said, In my name they shall cast out devils. And the end of our verse says, and it came out that very hour. The pythonic spirit left her. Her demonic giftedness, if, if we will put it that way, was gone. And I believe this was an act of mercy. Even though he was annoyed, this was an act of mercy. I doubt very seriously that the young slave girl enjoyed being guided by a demon and exploited for profit. I don't know of anyone who would just say, that's, that's my life and I love it. Her craft brought her no fame. She was a slave. No dignity. She was a slave. No riches. She was a slave. No future. She was a slave. All those things went to her owners. All the money, all the fame, all the accolades, all the glory, whatever it is that could be possibly cooked up in the midst of this scenario went to them. She was nothing more than a tool for profit. Now look at verse 19. 
But when her owners saw that their hope, oh, money, when they saw that their hope was hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. The owners of the slave girl witnessed the exorcism and then noticed the immediate results. They could tell that the slave girl was normal and they realized that their money-making scheme was over with. Filled with rage, they seized Paul and Silas. They seized Paul and Silas with the same ferocity that Paul formerly saw seized the early Christians uh, before he was converted. Remember, before he got converted, he went about and arrested Christians and had Stephen put to death in these things. They seized him with the same ferocity, same level of, of intent and violence that he did the early Christians. It's the same Greek word that's used there. This was a forceful and violent seizure. It was a, a seizure that, that was accompanied by bad intentions. The owners might have killed Paul and Silas on the spot. This is how ticked they were if there had been no witnesses present. Now the owners showed their true colors here. They may have been worshipers of Zeus, as most people were in that community, but money, mammon, was their true god. Take notice of how this is the point in the narrative where outrage and violence enters the scene, right? We've read all the way through, all the way up to verse 19 in chapter 16. We have seen Paul proclaiming the gospel pretty consistently in Philippi. We have seen no outrage, no explosion, no nothing. What happened in the other communities he went into back when he was with Barnabas when he went into these communities? He was almost killed they were run out of town, all of these things, all of these dynamics. This is the point. He'd been proclaiming the gospel. This is the point in the narrative where people finally get ticked off about the gospel. Why the delay? This had something to do with the chattering slave girl. When Paul preached Jesus, she pointed to Zeus. While Zeus was being pointed to by the slave girl, Paul and his team were no threat but as soon as the mythological chatty Kathy was silenced and the gospel began to, to come through unvarnished, all hell broke loose. Zeus was no longer being pointed to and the slave, uh, slave girl owners were about to lose a fortune, their money, their income. The gospel had now become in this community in Philippi a stumbling block and an offense. It was now threatening. The owners were so outraged that they dragged Paul and Silas into the agora to put them before the rulers of the city. Where were Timothy and Luke? <laughs> you notice in your Bible there it says just Paul and Silas were dragged. Why is it that the whole team never gets dragged? It's always like, you two, come with us. You know, and the other two guys are like, eh. right? What's going on here? These guys were there. They didn't get seized. But they followed along because Luke recorded this for us. He watched it. He was a, a firsthand witness along with Tim. Pretty interesting little thought. Now let's look at 20. 
And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they're in the Agora now, and they get brought before the magistrates. Here's what the owner said. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. That's how they open it up. The owners found the city rulers, the magistrates, and brought Paul and Silas before them. And they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. Two things to note here. The owners called Paul and Silas Jews. Now, there's no doubt that they were Jews, but that's not what they were shooting for here by making this declaration. In Roman culture, Jews were disliked for about a zillion reasons. I've got a handful of them for you. Jews held to a different moral code, the law of Moses. Greeks, Romans alike, thought that was the stupidest thing they'd ever heard of. And so Romans disliked Jews because of their strict moral code, the law of Moses. Jews rejected most, if not the the devout ones for sure, if not all the Roman Greek cultural norms in regards to eating, food, sex, marriage, parenting, and government. What does that mean? You had Jews that were in this community that were so vastly different from everyone else. The Romans just despised them for it. Look at them living differently in here in our community. How dare them? How dare they? Jews were considered by Romans overly zealous troublemakers in religion. And if you said one thing, there's multiple gods, the Jews would freak out. One god, ah! And they just, man, they just did not want to mess with their religion because it just incited all kinds of craziness with the Jews. They were fanatical. Jews gave no homage or allegiance to Caesar or the Roman gods. This may have been the biggest point of contention for Romans. Jews said, Caesar, we're not going to do much for him. He means nothing to us. He's not who you hold him up to be. And the Roman gods are a bunch of stinking carved idols. That was their position against this culture's gods and government, if you will. And, and this was a serious point of contention, man. The Romans just despised them for not worshiping their gods. In fact, that was one of the number one things that Romans did whenever they went in and conquered a land, is they converted that system, wherever it is they went, if they were irreligious, they converted them over to their religion. If they were religious, they drove out the you know, religious teachers and priests of that community and made them follow their religion. This was a total world belief system in ancient Rome. When they went in, they converted everything over there. Well, with the Jews, they had a hard time. Jews themselves were known for despising the Romans. These are the people that conquered us and are holding us in bondage. And so Jews hated Romans. You take all those things and add them together, man, that that Romans disliked the Jews for a a bunch of reasons. Now, there's a a good question that comes to mind here. It's a a good question. That's why didn't the Romans just exterminate the Jews? Right? I mean, if they're so problematic and troublesome, why not just wipe them off the face of the earth? Number one, God's holy covenant to the Jews, which means the Romans couldn't do it if they tried. Number two, taxes. The Romans taxed the Jews like you can't believe, and the Jews had money, always have. They saved their money. They hang on to their money. The Romans taxed them like you can't imagine. They made millions off the Jewish people. There's two reasons why they didn't exterminate them. Now, the intent of the slave owners 
was to notify, taking these things into consideration, how Romans felt about Jews. The intent of the slave owners was to notify the rulers of the ethnicity of their captives in an effort to alarm them. They're Jews, is what they said. And that immediately triggered all sorts of negative thoughts. Oh, no, are you kidding me? Why'd you bring them in here? For crying out loud, we're going to have to deal with these guys. That title stirred up all sorts of negative thoughts and concerns. And then they threw fuel on the fire by saying what? And they are disturbing our city. It's as if they said, these guys are Jews and they're doing what Jews do, causing trouble. Their indictment went further. They wanted to incite maximum fear in the rulers. Look at verse 21. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. It's bad enough that they said they're Jews. It's bad enough that they said they're stirring up our city. Now look, they advocate, they are teaching things that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Man, they're launching all they got at Paul and Silas here before these magistrates. What unlawful customs were the owners maybe referring to here, the slave owners referring to here. We can uncover the answer by simply juxtaposing some of the Roman doctrines with some of the Christian doctrines Paul would have been preaching as a minister of the gospel. First thing, the Roman doctrine of God. Romans had a pantheon of gods and goddesses who exercised power and oversight over various things. I stopped counting at 137 gods and goddesses. How do you got to have a Rolodex with you? Python, that's who we're worshiping today. How do you do this? They had a pantheon of gods. That was their doctrine of gods, plural, lower G. The Christian doctrine of God. There is one God and he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is eternal. He is holy. He is the God of Israel. Quick summary. The Roman doctrine of man, natural men, men in and of themselves are essentially good and capable of becoming great if they diligently pursue education, philosophy, and religion. Romans had a, a, a positive view of man, if you will. The Christian doctrine of man, natural men are fallen and totally incapable of inclining themselves to God. They have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are spiritually dead. They are treasonous. They are at war with God. Quite the opposite view of Roman belief. The Roman doctrine of salvation. Now, I hope you appreciate these points because let me tell you something. They were not easy to find. Man, I scoured the internet trying to find information on Roman theology. It is not easy. So you better like this stuff. Just kidding. Please. Roman doctrine of salvation. Here's what I discovered. Romans did not appear to believe in salvation or in the idea that they needed to be saved. They had no concept of that. They did, however, believe in the afterlife. Piety was the key to receiving a high-quality afterlife. Piety in their religion, in philosophy. The higher the piety the higher the quality. The lower the piety, the lower the quality afterlife. That was Roman doctrine of salvation. The Christian doctrine of salvation, I think we're all familiar with this. Salvation is by grace alone. 
through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the scripture alone. The five solas summarize Christian salvation very well. The Roman doctrine of governmental authority, this is a huge one. Caesar is God in the flesh. That's what they thought of him. He is God incarnate on earth. He is the visible, physical manifestation of God on earth. He is to be received and worshipped as a God. Do everything the Caesar, and that would be, do everything that the Caesar requests without hesitation or resistance. That's Roman theology. The Christian doctrine of governmental authority. Respect authorities because God has put them in place. But do not receive or worship authority as a God because God is a jealous God who will not share his glory with anyone or anything. If an authority opposes the law of God and seeks to force you to do the same, do not obey that authority. That's our basic fundamental belief. The Roman doctrine of spirits. Romans interacted with and even pursued spirits without caution or regard to their own safety. They used certain spirits or the possessed for personal gain, as in the slave girl. They tried to harness the power of certain spirits in their worship, healing, medicine, and in their professions. They were very careless like many Americans are today and very foolish. The Christian doctrine of spirits there are evil spirits or demons, and there are holy angels. Any spirit who denounces Jesus as Lord and Savior is an evil spirit, or as John likes to refer to in his epistles, an antichrist. We have the primary spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who is our guide and teacher. We are to be filled with him. We are to listen to him. We are to follow him. And when he speaks, he speaks the very word of God. Why? Because he is the spirit of truth. Christians are to be discerning when it comes to spirits. And we are to steer clear of divination and those who practice it. Amen? As you can see, there are and were then massive differences between Roman and Christian doctrine. What, Walt, what Paul, pardon me, what Paul preached was in every way contrary, contradictory to what his Romans, Roman listeners accepted and practiced. But I'm not convinced that the doctrines I mentioned were the things the owners were actually referring to, possibly. I know Paul proclaimed these things because he preached the gospel, but these guys were just straight up peeved about losing money, and that's why they asserted or implied that Paul and Silas were spreading contradictory doctrines. As I said, hell didn't break loose until they started losing money. And then the gospel started to come out clearly. This was a money issue. These guys weren't smart enough to set up a real business where they had to work hard and earn a buck. And they were Romans. They wouldn't do it. These guys were nothing more, in my opinion, than scumbag opportunists who took advantage of a little girl. Notice how they never mentioned the slave girl or how their business was brought to ruin in their contesting, in their declaration before these leaders. Did you notice that? 
They never said, hey, we had this young girl here who was possessed by a pythonic spirit making us fat bank. I got spinners on my camel. It's unbelievable. And look what happened here, man. They, he did something, snapped his finger, said something about the Lord Jesus, not sure who that is. And then that thing left her, and now we're broke. Notice how that's not in the text. They never mention what actually happened to the magistrates. Don't you find that interesting? You know why? Because that wouldn't have held any water. That claim would not have earned the attention or action of the rulers. I don't think it would have. They knew this, and that's why they made it seem like Paul and Silas were threatening the community. After hurling Paul and Silas before the rulers, they made a racist comment. Jews! This is a racial comment. And then they backed up that racial comment with a series of bigoted allegations. Because they are Jews, they are trying to introduce contrary things, Jewish things, bad things. And we can't have that, magistrates. While actually reciting in their hearts, they ruined our business. They ruined our business. They ruined our business. Now, how did those present respond? Oh. 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stalks. A crowd of merchants and shoppers gathered around the magistrate's booth or office and listened to the slave girl's owner's allegations. The crowd became filled with anger and hostility. MacArthur wrote, the crowd became a frenzied anti-Semitic mob. This turned into a dang race riot. Angry Gentiles rushed Paul and Silas and began to attack them. The magistrates laid hands on Paul and Silas and stripped them of their clothes. Family, they are naked at this point. Ultimate humiliation is what they were seeking to do to them. Strip them, not of their outer vestments, of their clothes. They are naked. They wanted to humiliate them in front of this angry mob. The magistrates then called for the agorist security force to beat them with rods or what we might call billy clubs. After inflicting many blows, probably 40 minus 1 for both guys, the magistrates called for the jailer to put them in prison, and the jailer arrived and placed them into custody. The jailer then took them to the prison and put them in the inner prison where there would be no chance of escape. What an incredible story. Got some final thoughts for you. We are going to finish on time. <laughs> Somebody went, good. Ah. You guys cooked up? This is an amazing story. Unbelievable. Final thoughts. The gospel, 
the gospel. The gospel was risky business back in these days, wasn't it? Huh? Yeah, it, it's, it's true that it's true that these guys uh, were ticked off because they were losing money. But there is some truth to their allegations because once they started losing money, they realized what these guys were doing, preaching another religion. And that infuriated them just as much as they're losing money. And that was the catalyst. That was what they used to incite fear and persecution. It is the gospel that ultimately created this trouble. The gospel was risky business back in those days. And it still is in some places throughout the world today. Iran, Sudan, North Korea. But why not in America? It's because Americans have turned the true gospel into a sin-friendly, sappy, consumer-appealing, self-helpish, antinomian message. Americans have what I like to call Americanized the biblical gospel. Come as you are and remain that way. Pray this prayer, inviting Jesus into your heart, and you shall be saved. The point of the gospel is to make you worldly rich or to fix all of your little problems. If Paul and Silas had preached the Americanized gospel, they would have never experienced any trouble wherever they went, period. There would have been no indictments, no stonings, no chasings, no American, or no American, yeah, no angry mobs, no beatings, no imprisonments, no death, none of that. You take it out a little further and you think about what would have happened if Jesus would have preached the American gospel. Just think about that for a moment. This health and wealth, selfie mentality gospel that we have here, this powerless scourge is what it is. You think about what would have happened if Jesus Christ would have proclaimed what most men in America are proclaiming as the gospel today. You think about that. I'll tell you what would have happened. That he would have never been seized. He would have never been tried in a kangaroo court. He would have never been judged. He would have never been sentenced to death. He would have never been killed on a cross. He would have never been buried in a tomb. He would have not been raised on the third day. The Americanized gospel would not have delivered, if Jesus had preached it, it, preached it, it would not have delivered him over to death to make a way for sinners to be saved and reconciled to God. That is a, a, it sounds terrible. It sounds like you don't know what you're talking about, Pastor Phil. It's a harsh reality, friends. But it is a reality. The Americanized gospel isn't true. It has no power. It is not threatening. It is not convicting. And it is not salvific. It does not hang men in the balance. It does not hang men over the mouth of hell and say, thy shall believe in Jesus Christ or you will 
fall into hell. It does not say that. Americanized gospel is not life or death or heaven or hell. It is soft and pliable. We make it what we want. We make it say what we want to hear and we make it mean what we want it to mean and the devil is laughing at the church today. <laughs> Keep preaching that. Keep doing my work. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would be, as Al Mohler rightly stated, last week, that we would be as candid as the scriptures are candid. That we would just simply proclaim the gospel as it is recorded. Because, you see, when you proclaim it as it's recorded, there's just no wiggle room. There's no cliff note space. Uh, my prayer is that we would be as candid as the scriptures are ca candid. We would just simply proclaim what's here. That's what the church needs to return to. Just proclaiming the scriptures as they are recorded. We would just simply be as candid as scripture is candid in all matters. Sin is sin. Scripture says if it's a sin, it's a sin. It just says it. We just need to say what it says. The scriptures call men to repentance. We need to just call men to repentance. And you know what we need to do? We come back to the scripture and just proclaim scripture as it is. That We rightly divide the word and just proclaim scripture as it is. We need to leave the results in God's hands. And that is one of the reasons why things are so screwed up. Because men believe that they have to somehow be used by God to produce results. A man never produces results. Ever. I'll never forget, I went to a, a mini one-day conference at a church in Ripon a couple years ago. And uh, there was probably about four, I don't know, I think you were there with us. There's probably 300 people there. And they did a Q&A. And, and so they asked the audience, you know, hey, write down your questions. And I was so excited that a couple of my questions got asked. That never happens. And my question to Dr. Robert Godfrey, who I really admire, the great man of God, my question to him was, what is the biggest problem in the church today? And man, I was so excited. I was like, all right. Phil Baker, I was like, that's me. Would like to know what, what you think is the greatest problem in the church today. And I thought he was going to say consumerism. Because that had been something that I'd been watching and, and dealing with and, and, and just, just, just bothered with. And that, that wasn't the answer he gave. You know what the answer he gave was? Evangelism. It's the way the church evangelizes. Changing the gospel, softening its blow then injecting all sorts of different crazy strategies and pragmatic ways of doing things and you know, seeker sensitivity and all this mumbo-jumbo crap. I just sat there and listened to him, and I said, he's right. Somehow we've gotten into our minds that you know, we need to reach people, and in order to really be able to do that, we, we better probably use a little bit of this. 
And then when we find it to be very difficult and very candid, we need to massage those sections. But we certainly can't call homosexuality what it is or whatever the sin is, adultery. He was right. We need to come back to the scripture and be as candid as scripture is candid. And, and, and we, need to, we need to leave the results in God's hands. And, and guess what? If we are persecuted for doing so, because I, I truly believe you will be, even in America. You know why we don't have persecution here? Because we're not doing it right. You have any idea what would happen if Paul and Silas marched into Modesto and started proclaiming the gospel? Do you think people would be like, this is the best thing since sliced bread? All the pawn shops and everything, everything would explode. This community would explode into fury as they go around exposing the idolatry, various forms of idolatry and and all of these things and these sins as the gospel shines light on all of these things. You think they'd come in and they'd be well-received? Are you kidding me? Our mayor would probably hang them from the Modesto Wealth, Contentment, Meth Health, whatever the heck that sign is down there. It's over here. Meth health? Where that came from? (laughs) It's not not a health treatment, trust me. (laughs) It's what happens when you ad-lib. You say stupid stuff. Stick to the script. Uh, These guys would be hanging from that thing. When they go, we're going to read about it in the near future, when they go into Ephesus, when Paul goes into Ephesus and proclaims the gospel, it's not, it's not you know, my little ponies and hugs and kisses and lollipops. It's people wanting to kill, destroy. If we are persecuted for, for sticking to the scripture and proclaiming scripture and being candid as scripture is candid, and we're, we're going to be persecuted for doing that. And, and when that happens, uh, what are we to do? We're to rejoice because we have been found worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, here's the Lord's charge to every believer in this room. Preach the truth candidly in love. Candidly doesn't mean you're a jerk. Preach the truth candidly in love. Leave the results in God's hands. Suffer well for the name of Jesus if you are called to suffer and rejoice in the joy of our salvation. Amen? That's the very heart of Paul and Silas. When they are in our story, they are suffering tremendously for Christ. And they rejoiced in that suffering and proclaimed the gospel even in prison. How marvelous. I'd like to lead a time of communion for us. It's for believers only. This is a time where you need to confess your sin to God. You need to repent of your sin. Confess your sin. Let the Lord search your heart. Confess any sin that you have. Maybe you've been profane. Maybe you've been know, lustful, maybe you've been lying, maybe you've been lax with the gospel. We have been entrusted with the gospel. We must do our part to forsake the gospel and the mission of God is a sin. And so I don't know what you're struggling with, but confess whatever sin you have 
before the Lord and then also remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. We can't add or subtract from it. He finished our salvation, the atonement, our reconciliation before God right on the cross and through the resurrection. It's a finished work, but I want to guard against antinomianism, and I want to warn you that we're not conformed to the image of Christ by simply remembering what he did for us. We are conformed to the image of Christ by putting in good, hard work of study, prayer, walking in holiness and righteousness. That's how God conforms us to the image of Christ. We actually have a part in that. No part in our salvation, but we do have a part in our sanctification. Okay? And then lastly, my desire is that we would be refreshed by the Lord's grace. His grace is refreshing. His mercies are new every day. Confess, remember, commit yourself to his ways and be refreshed by his grace. Father God, we lift up this time to you, Lord. We're humbled by your scripture. We could look at how two ancient brothers suffered for the name of Christ. Lord, I I pray that we would suffer for Christ, that we would proclaim the gospel, that we would be as candid as scripture is candid, that we would proclaim it in love. Why? Because we, first of all, want to be obedient to you. Second of all, that we deeply desire to see people come to a saving knowledge of the truth, that people are perishing, that the devil has dominion over them, that there are many possessed and led by the devil. God, we want to see people get saved. We want to see people come to know you, to enjoy you, to serve you, to be part of the church. May we have this uh, time of communion, Lord, just to confess our sin, to remember what the Lord Jesus did, to commit ourselves to walking in obedience, to loving your law, and to be refreshed by your grace, made new right in this very moment. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Elements are on the sides. Help yourself.